Have I done it right? Okay. Here, can you take this and put it in? Sure. Okay, so welcome here, everybody. I'm going to, here at Maplecrest, we do the sermon first. So I'm going to jump in to our topic for the day, which is ominously the judgment of God. Welcome to Maplecrest. <laughs> yeah, that's a good topic. So, judgment of God, uh, but it's not just the judgment of God, it's the judgment of God and the Father's heart. Um, yeah, maybe I'll just pray again. Lord, thank you for oh, this great topic. Uh, your judgment is amazing and beautiful. And I just pray that you would help us to be open to your judgment and how you think about us, uh, so that we can be lined up with your will. And uh, help me to, to uh, humbly and uh, with fear and trembling represent how you judge us. Amen. Uh, you'll hear why I'm afraid of this topic at the end. Um, yeah, my name is Cyrus. I'm a pastor here. And um, I'm a psychologist as well, and the reason I chose this topic was because sometimes I find people come to my clinic, oftentimes, or sometimes they're Christian, and uh, this has been something that I've talked about here and there in my clinic to people, and it's been helpful for them. And uh, so sometimes when I see something that's helpful for people, it kind of makes it up, uh, up the ladder on my list of things to talk about here. Um, to start, I want to talk about um, how... I don't, uh, I don't want it to come across today that I think God is fickle, that he has moods, um, which may happen. He doesn't just, it's not like you can catch him on a good day and catch him on a bad day. Uh, it's, when God is uh, in his judgment, it's, it can feel like he's fickle, though, because he's surprising and unpredictable to us. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he's not predictable. That doesn't mean that he's not judging um, by something that's stable within himself. And... Um, it's not just like he's playing favorites or something like that. So I want to make sure that that's coming across. Um, but my, my goal is also for today is for you to be able to walk away and say, like, I, I think I understand a little bit better how God judges us and uh, judges other people around us. I think it was a couple, maybe three Sundays ago, I actually talked about how we're supposed to be judges. Um, and that might um, seem offensive. Um, I don't know if the recording came through, but... I did spend a lot of time trying to back that up, so, uh, and I didn't get a lot of bad reactions from it, so that was, that was good. So now it's just about, like, when we understand how God can judge, hopefully we can also understand how to judge ourselves, um, each, how to judge each other well. So it's a scary topic, and um, because of that, I think when people are talking about the judgment of God, uh, we gravitate towards things that are really solid. Uh, we like principles. Actually, we would like an encyclopedia. We would like to know exactly what to do in every circumstance. And uh, Natasha, actually, uh, her story is a bit of an example of this. She gave me permission to tell it. She grew up Catholic. And uh, when she was growing up, there was a lot of mystery and things that she didn't you know, appreciate about the Catholic uh, perspective. And she didn't really know that there were other options, so she walked away uh, from Catholicism. And uh, as she was kind of struggling to figure out, she knew she uh, still believed in something. She was just trying to figure out what. Uh, I don't know if she quite put it that way. But 
eventually she came to Islam and she spent a season exploring becoming a Muslim. And on reflection, um, she really liked the Islam faith because it was, uh, in some ways, to practice it was quite simple. Uh, at least that's what she was getting from it. Uh, if you did a few rituals, I mean, the rituals are not necessarily easy, but they are easy if you can make room for them in your life. It's like, okay, you do your prayers and things like this. I don't know all the rituals. But if you did them, you were a good Muslim. It was kind of like simple. If you do A, B, C, you're good. You don't have to worry too much about it. And she was even saying, like, the fasting. It's like, oh, you have to do all these big fasts. But she's like, but actually they're feasts because the way they structure their day, they just kind of sleep all day and then they eat all night, and then they sleep the next day, and then they eat. So she was like, once you really get into the rituals, they're not so bad. Um, now she's fasting sometimes, and she's like, this is a lot harder. <laughs> um, so when we're uncertain, when people are uncertain, they don't know what to do, oftentimes they will gravitate towards trying to make it simple. And in Christianity, we're kind of faced with the opposite. It's actually, I mean, in some ways, some people would say, well, it's easy to be a Christian. You, it's pretty clear in the Bible what to do. But I find, actually, when you start to explore some difficult scenarios, which come up for us now more often because we're pastoring, which is maybe why this is here, sometimes I have to think about things, and I don't have time to think about things and prepare a sermon, so you guys kind of have to hear what I'm having to think about. I only have time to think about one thing at a time, so it turns into the sermon. Anyway, so we're kind of confronted with situations more often now. And when you actually try to figure out what to do in these situations, from a distance it can seem clear, but when you actually get into them and you start to kind of move around a little bit, it's actually not clear at all. And it's not just get the prayer rug and you know, fast for a day and you're going to be good. It's just not that simple in Christianity. Um, even though we'd like to feel like it is. And it can almost be offensive to think God's uh, God's path isn't clear. And I'm going to even say something that, might, that I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about. Just because you know the right thing to do... No, that's not quite right. Just because you know the right thing doesn't mean you know the right thing to do. Is that kind of strange? I've heard, pa I've heard pastors talk about this too. Okay, so now you know what to do, but how do you pastor that? And I always be like, oh, what does that mean? How do you pastor that? <clears throat> Just because you know... The right thing doesn't mean you know the right thing to do. Okay, Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. How do, I, how do I put this? So, if you feel like you know what God wants you to do, I want to reassure you that you probably don't. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, we kind of accept the fact that people in Genesis didn't know as much about what to do as we do. Um, but we don't accept as easily that we know just as little, comparatively speaking, as they do. Um, like if I was to say, I'm over here, and God's ways are over there, and I'm getting closer, 
Some, you might picture it like in Genesis, they were over here, like they didn't really know what to do. It was pretty far, right? And now we're like a lot closer. Like we're way over here, we know pretty much what to do. Maybe we're even like, yeah, I mean, I don't know everything, right? But I mean, we have the Bible, right? We, we know a lot. But when I read that scripture, I get the perspective, it's like, yeah, in Genesis, they didn't know maybe as much about what to do, right? And now, I think it's like we know a little bit more. But it's like, comparatively speaking, we really don't know, I think, all that much. Now, I can't prove that because I don't know what's over there, right? Because he hasn't told us yet. Um, but just given the complexity of the world and something like that scripture, and I just get the feeling like, yeah, we know a little bit more of what to do, but we don't really know what to do. And it's like God's grace is like all of this. And it's like you really don't know what to do. But I can cover that. Just like I covered the guys in Genesis, and you knew, they knew less, I'm covering that gap. I can cover this gap too. You think you're farther ahead, but you're really not all that close. I'm not sure if this fits into my sermon very well, but it's a funny story. Natasha and I were in BC, and um, we were, what were we doing? I don't know. We were sitting there, and we were looking. Yeah, so we were on the road, but we were taking a rest, and we were looking down this street, and there was this guy, and he had a dog, and he was riding his bike, and he was walking his dog at the same time. Okay, that's fine. And... Um, Natasha loves dogs and so we were watching this and he was kind of being mean to the dog a little bit kind of being a little bit nasty and then it kind of culminated in this moment where this guy like yanked on the dog and like yelled and swore at the dog I think and Natasha who was sitting beside me um, or like kind of standing beside me yelled and was like hey right? And I had this instinct, right? Because what she didn't notice in that moment was the guy had a look about him, right? Like, I used to work in Stony Mountain, right? I know the look, right? <laughs> now, this is like totally profiling somebody from a distance, right? You know, but in myself, I came to this judgment about this guy based on his appearance, various designs that were on him, and the way that he was treating his dog, his relative size to me, his willingness to engage in all kinds of things, like on the dog that I probably wouldn't be willing to do. And I came to a different judgment. There was one dichotomy, right? I'm going to be talking about dichotomies. There was one side of like justice, right? I don't know what my side is, like fear. But anyway, at that moment, without even a thought, like I did not sit and think about this, I picked Natasha up. I don't normally do that, but she, I just picked her up and I put her in the car. <laughs> and I shut the door, and I was, I was all of a sudden in the other side of the car, and we were leaving. And she was still, like, moving. <laughs> she was, like, still angry. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we were opposites in that moment. But I knew, I knew that if her anger would all of a sudden turn into something else if he did approach us, I also knew, right, like, She's not the one who's going to have to deal with this guy, right? You know, like, <laughs> there was another moment in our lives where this actually happened in another way, right? And all of a sudden, like, where did Natasha go? And here I am, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, hello. <laughs> she's got this justice inside of her. Yeah, she's Irish. 
So anyway, there's always these dichotomies in life. And um, one of the ways that God, so one of the difficulties that comes in judgment and God's judgment is the fact that there are these dichotomies that make it really difficult. Like, for example, I was to sit up here or stand up here and talk a lot about justice, you'd probably start to feel uncomfortable. And you'd, you'd probably be like, why isn't Cyrus talking about mercy? Right? But if I was to come up here and talk about mercy for the whole time, some of you might even be like, what about justice? I think he's missing it, right? And Paul did this in one of his, uh, in Romans 6.15, he actually references this, and he says, he's talking a lot about grace, and he says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. So he's even struggling with that. When he talks a lot about one side, you start to maybe forget about the other. And that's the beauty of God's judgment, is he's always bringing the two dichotomies together. They're both correct. It is justice, and it is mercy in his judgment. Now, one of the ways, so now how do we judge? One of the ways that he does this so beautifully is through creating time. Now, we normally take, we take time for granted, but that was actually a choice for God. He didn't have to create time, but he did. And I think one of the reasons that he created time was because he had a lot of things to do that were opposite. Like, he wanted to judge us, he wanted to decide whether we had made it, and he wanted to have justice, but he also wanted to have mercy. So how do you have a people have, have mercy on them and also still have justice? Well, I think a lot of the times he just separates them by time. So he's like, I did both. I just did it one and then I did the other. Or the other one and then the other. There's a time and a place for everything. Everything has its season. And so in some ways, some people would say that we're in a season of grace right now, generally speaking on the earth, and then in the end times we're going to be in a season of judgment. So time has created the opportunity for God to show all sides of his character. Even though right now there still is justice, and even though in the end times there still will be mercy. And he also does it through wisdom. It's sometimes God will find a way to do something that we didn't even know was possible in that moment. Normally when we think about um, uh, judgment, we think about it like there's a right thing to do, and this is it, and then you have to do it. And it's usually the simplest thing. But God will often seem to bend the rules in his judgment, even though he's totally not bending the rules at all. But it looks that way to us because we don't see all the options that he sees. One of the examples, it's like just the clearest example of bringing justice and mercy together without even needing to use time would be the cross. The cross in one moment was this perfect expression of justice. And it was also this perfect expression of mercy. It was justice because there was a penalty for sin, and it was mercy because it wasn't us. So that's that wisdom where it's like, that's not obvious. The obvious thing would be just to put us on the cross. That's like the simple solution, right? Just put us up there. Okay, he did it. He goes on the cross. Isn't that what it says? He pays the penalty. But then he finds this other way that's perfectly within his rules. He's not breaking, he's not having to divide himself at all, and yet he's able to express two different things at the same time. I'm going to give you, okay, so then just to kind of capture that, the scripture I believe that captures the, the, the struggle with the dichotomy that he actually, he, he tells us specifically, I believe, not to just do the simple thing, it's A, then B. He tells us not to do that. He tells us to try to find this other way that he kind of finds all the time. And I'll read the scripture. 
Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, I love this scripture, and I, I would love to make that like a regular theme. Because the idea that Jesus can find these ways of doing things in this third way that we don't see as being obvious is really fascinating to me and kind of captures, as a leader, what I'm always looking for. I'm looking for the third way. I'm not looking for the obvious way or the simple way. I'm looking for, especially when dealing with the enemy, because the enemy's full of wolves and things like this. So if I'm talking to God, like if I was Moses in the tent talking to God face to face, I don't even need to think about this, right? It's like it's obvious. We're on the same page. But when there's any sin in the picture, when there's any kind of potential wolf getting in there, we have to be thinking about how do I express the dichotomy? How do I be completely innocent? in this, just like at the cross. I'm completely innocent. He did everything right and still display everything that God has to display in that moment. How can I be wise as a serpent in order to not just be simplistic in this moment, but to actually capture his heart and his character in a way that maybe people wouldn't even see at first blush? And that is a challenge, to find that third way, that middle ground that's not obvious, we want a formula, but when he says, be innocent as a dove, and I looked up the Greek and it says, unmixed, pure, innocent. To be innocent as a dove and yet to be wise as a serpent, it's not easy. It's not always black and white. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about the woman caught in adultery. Now, I was looking for a place where I could see that God could choose two options, and this is the one that I kind of got fascinated with. Um, so the woman caught in adultery. So basically, there's a woman caught in adultery, I would and she was caught in the act. So I would assume that there's another person involved. It's not mentioned. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? So... They're confronting Jesus with this moment. Now, there's a few problems in this moment. The first being, like, where's the man, right? Jesus doesn't mention that part. But there's moments that are wrong with, there's parts of this that are justice, like the, the justice is incorrect. So Jesus goes on to say, you know, who, uh, who cast, like, go cast the first stone if you have no sin, right? There's... There's actually discussions about how that's a justice thing, how you actually need to be a witness of a certain character and have certain qualities in yourself in order to be able to cast the first stone. So he's kind of referencing that, I think. And everybody says, okay, you're right. We're actually not great witnesses. Maybe I was related to them. I can't be a witness if I'm related to the person. I can't be a witness if I've done certain things in my life and things like this. So I don't know if he's completely saying, if you've ever sinned, you can't judge. He might actually be saying something along the Jewish customs, like you guys are trying to do this, but you can't be a witness. If you've got these qualities, did you even think of that? And then they all kind of back off and say, you know what, I'm not a good witness, right? And then in the end, he says, who else is here to accuse you? Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. Well, technically speaking, then Jesus can't. So we call this like mercy, right? But he actually can't because we need two or three witnesses, right? So, is, so there's actually an argument that he's not actually being all that merciful in that moment. He's actually just trying to line up the justice system and saying, this is not a correct moment in justice. You guys don't have great witnesses. 
where's the man? He didn't mention that one. And also, I can't now be a witness because we don't have two. Now you could say, well, Jesus maybe wasn't there, so he wasn't witness. Okay. You could also, um, but I think, and it, this was an interesting actually thing that came to my mind, which is like, wasn't Jesus one time actually a witness all by himself? Wasn't there a time in the Bible? So, because I, I heard this, you know, teaching on this, and I was like, wasn't Jesus a, a, a witness all by himself? So I looked it up, and it's actually like immediately after the story of the woman in adultery. Like he goes on to make an, a statement, a statement exactly right after this. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life, or something like that. Something important. <laughs> yes. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, right? And then the Pharisee says, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. So right away, they're now pulling it on him, right? He pulled it on them, like, right, you don't have enough witnesses. Now they're saying, well, you don't have enough witnesses, right? And then he says, I am one, capital one, who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. It's like, man, Jesus, you are playing it both ways. You are playing it, oh, there's no other witnesses, so then we can't stone you, right? Oh, well, I can bear witness to myself. And it's like both of these are within his rules. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like a narrow tightrope. Jesus has got some room. He could have gone back to the woman and said, you know what, I witnessed it, just like I witnessed a lot of other things prophetically in my life. And you know what? The Father's with me because I am the one, so I can actually throw the first stone myself. Right? Isn't that interesting? It's like he actually has the ability to move within his rules in order to express everything in himself. Just like he could have said, very much, you're going on the cross because you are the one who sinned. Or he could have said, I'm going to go on the cross for you. There was room for him actually to decide on what he wanted to express in that moment, within the rules, and be completely innocent. Now, within his character, I don't think there was room. I don't think it was his mood in the moment. I think within his character, following his principles, I think he kind of had to follow his way of doing things because that's who he is. He wasn't forced to, it's just who he is. But I just wanted to show you how there's actually room within the rules to actually do have choices to do things differently and still be innocent. So how do we find this third way? How do we find the third way to know um, when Jesus is going to go left or when Jesus is going to go right and still be innocent? And then, therefore, when we're supposed to go left and when we're supposed to go right and still be innocent? One of the most interesting things in the Bible to me is this idea that God is um, kind of harsh, and doesn't really understand you in his judgment. I think a lot of people kind of feel like when I get to the, to ju the judgment seat, God is going to look at me, and he's just going to look at me with like, no, it's just going to be me, and I'm going to be like naked, and he's going to be on a, a thing, and he's, and it might be, but it's going to be like, he's not really going to see my circumstances. Like normally when people explain themselves, and they get judgment from anywhere else, if you go to any court, there's always circumstances. And when you get to God, it's like, people are like, there's nobody with you. You've got to stand in front of God alone. True. But they kind of say it with a sneer. You know, and it's like, he is going to look at you, and he's going to see your sin, 
And that's it. Like, that's all he's going to see, right, if you don't have Jesus. Well, when you actually look at his judgments, um, when you actually look at the times he judges, you see that he doesn't judge the way that we do, or in that way at all. Um, Proverbs 21, 2. A person may look... A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. If I was to tell you, you might see it this way. If, if, you, if I had peop, two people who committed murder kind of come into the room, one standing here, one standing here, and I was going to say, how is the Lord going to judge them? I think in our, in our fear of the Lord, when we don't see him as a father, we would say, well, you know, like, he's going to get it. I think that's our emotional response, like, oh, don't commit murder, because you're going to get it. And, like, don't commit murder. But, like, you're going you're gonna to get it. But I would actually, if you were actually to think about it, if we had one murderer sitting here and one murderer sitting here, I don't, if you really thought about it, you'd probably say, I don't know how God's going to judge them. And I think that's the right answer. Because, Proverbs 21.2, a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. And we can't see their heart. First Samuel sixteen seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look at his appearance, or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." So this is kind of the choosing of David, and they're all the brothers there lined up, and they all the brothers looked really good. And Samuel was going to choose them, but God said, don't look at them that way. That's you're judging the way man judges. Look at their, the Lord looks at the heart. So that's why you have to do it prophetically. You need a relationship with the Lord in order to know which person God is going to choose. Now, sometimes people will say, now, everybody can be judged and go to hell. I like to talk about hell at some point, so we'll get there. But... Everybody can be judged and go to hell, even if they don't know the Lord, even if they haven't had a missionary come and tell them the name of Jesus. And that's based on this scripture in Romans 1.20. There are things about him that people cannot see, his eternal power, and all the things that make him God. But since the beginning of the world, those things have been easy to understand by what God made, so people have no excuse for the bad things they do. So basically he's saying, even if you're just walking through the world and you see nature, you'll know that there's a God, and you'll know enough to be able to get in. But what I want you to see is the other side of this, which is basically saying that if they didn't walk through the world, if they didn't see the nature around them, maybe they actually would have an excuse. Does that make sense? Like, in order to justify, he didn't just say, well, he's going to send them to hell because he's God and they're human and he made them. He said, well, because they actually have enough revelation, right? So it's actually implied in the scripture that you do have to have revelation in order to get judged. I'll make it even clearer. You don't need to kind of base it all on that. <clears throat> in Matthew 10, he sends out the disciples and they go and they do miraculous things over unclean spirits, casts out things, healing, sicknesses of all kinds. And then he says, And whoever will not receive your words when you depart from that house or city, shake, the dust, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah 
in the day in the day of judgment than for that city. So what he's actually saying here is he actually looks at your circumstances when he judges you. He actually looks at all of the things that have happened to you and your heart in that moment, and then he makes his judgment. He's not going to just judge you in some cold, distant manner. He's going to look at you based on everything that's happened to you in your life. It was funny, Natasha and I were in um, Dominican Republic, and uh, we were on vacation, and we were at a resort where you had to pile up your luggage in the morning that you were leaving. So at the front desk, very beautiful, you have to pile up your luggage, and then you have to wait for the people to come and get you. And so we were kind of on the resort without our luggage for a little while, but it's just sitting there in a pile. It didn't seem like a big deal until later. Then they put our luggage into whatever, and we go to the airport, we go through security, we're sitting there at the gate, looking, waiting for our flight, and all of a sudden, over the PA, will, was it just you? Will Natasha please come to security? Okay. So she goes, and I think, did you wait for me, or was I there? You waited for me. Yeah, so you waited for me, and then we both went to security, and they took us down to a part of the airport where nobody goes, or nobody from the public. It was just cement walls, like whitewashed brick walls, with a fold-out table. And we had already been talking on the way down there, because it took a little while to get there, about kind of what we were going to do if one of us ended up in a Dominican Republic <laughs> prison. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wasn't very chivalrous in that moment. I was actually thinking quite logically. I, I, I think quite logically, but not emotionally enough sometimes. And my chivalry isn't what is it, what it should be, because I was thinking, okay, so Natasha, you're gonna look better on the poster. <laughs> if we put me on the post, if we put me on the poster, we're not gonna get anybody signing that petition. <laughs> so we'll put you on the poster, and I'm good, like I'm good at organizing things and like starting organizations and stuff, so I'll start the organization to get you out of prison and you'll be on the poster. I actually thought that made sense and I didn't think I was being emotionally influenced at all by any kind of fear or anything like that. So we were talking about this on the way down. <laughs> and then they brought us to our bag and it was Natasha's bag. And uh, they put it on the fold-out table and there were a few of them there, and I think some of them had guns. And, um, and then they opened up the bag. And we were thinking about like, oh my goodness, our bag had just been sitting there for anybody to find. What's in our bag? There was a huge bag, a Ziploc bag, right on the top, filled with white powder. And Natasha yelled, oh, my protein powder. <laughs> I actually don't think it quite happened that way. He said, protein powder, as he looked at us and looked at her, and then she's like, yes. Anyway, they didn't even taste it. We could have totally gotten away with something right there because they just closed up the bag. And uh, so that's why you get luggage locks. It's not, <laughs> I always thought you got luggage locks to protect your luggage. I, but I didn't care, what, like, oh, somebody steals my, like, 
swimsuit, who cares, right? I'm not gonna get a luggage lock. It's actually to make sure that you can tell if somebody goes in your luggage. That's why you get a luggage lock, okay? So that you can tell when they rip it open to put the drugs in. <laughs> what was my point? <laughs> I forget. So, uh, basically you're judged based on your revelation. And so even something that looks uh, incriminating might not necessarily be incriminating in that moment because it's based on circumstance. It's based on circumstance. It doesn't quite fit the story, but it's close enough. Based on circumstance. So there's a parable in Luke 12, which talks about servants getting stuff. There's a few parables like this. Uh, you know, servants get stuff, master leaves, comes back. This one's interesting. And the servants who knew the master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But, uh, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving stripes shall be beaten with few. So if you know, you're going to be beaten with many stripes. If you don't know, you're going to be beaten with few. What you know, what's been revealed to you, matters. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Revelation isn't necessarily what somebody has told you. Revelation has been what has been put in front of you. What has been put in front of you that you should have seen, that you should be able to see? Just like nature, it's around us, it's revelation. I'm not gonna go deeply into it, but this actually carried on in different ways, like with Moses. If you look at the judgments on the people of Israel in when they were following Moses around the desert, they were extremely harsh for sometimes very subtle things that I would think are quite subtle, and yet they're getting wiped out by God with sicknesses and things like this. But you have to understand their circumstances. They were in the middle of one of the most powerful revivals in history. They had pillars of fire, pillars of smoke. Their pastor talked to God face to face every day and glowed because of it. I glow? Thank you. <laughs> I'm not Moses. But. but so they were in the midst of one of the biggest pieces of revelation to ever be on the earth, and so much was required of them. Ananias and Sapphira, it seems like quite a harsh judgment. I didn't quite give everything, and I didn't quite tell you that I gave everything, but I actually gave quite a bit to the movement, and I'm getting killed in front of Peter by the Holy Spirit directly. But you have to think about what kind of revelation were Ananias and Sapphira under? They had Peter as their pastor. You guys should be feeling very comfortable right now. <laughs> Judgment of God is... Anyway, so they had Peter as their pastor. They had huge revelation. They had Jesus who had just been on the earth revealing to many of these people. And so, yeah, under those circumstances, the judgment of God, the requirements for them were much higher than for people from the east like the wise men coming and following a star. The revelation for them was there, but it wasn't nearly as high, not nearly as present. And you'll hear stories about this. I'm not going to get into them because I can't verify them. But you'll hear stories of people who go to revivals, places where God is really breaking through even today, and you'll also sometimes hear 
the story of extreme judgment that, that happens to certain people in those circumstances because the revelation and the power of God is so thick and so heavy in those places. It's just put right in front of them. And it's, if you can't see it under that, if you can't see it under that, then the judgment is going to be higher. Okay, so God's judgment is relative. It's relative. If I put two murderers up in front of you, I don't know what's been revealed to them. And I don't know what their hearts are. So I almost have no idea what God's judgment of them is. That's why we have to judge so carefully. And that's just one piece of how God judges our heart that's not so clear if we just look at the law and say murder is wrong. The next one that I want to talk about is professed revelation. There's two scriptures I want to reference for this one. John 9. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. So we've got one metric here over here, which is like, What's your revelation? And then we have another metric over here, which is, how much revelation do you claim? How much do you say that you see? I'll give you another scripture for this. Particularly hits home. James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So it's basically saying, I'm, I'm reading into it a little bit based on the other scripture, and I think it's saying, if you say that you're a teacher, if you actually have the gall to get up in front of a church and tell people what's right and what's wrong and how to love God and all of these things, you are professing revelation. You are professing saying, I know better than some other people and I should be a teacher. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. Obviously, this is scary for me. But I think, it's, I think all of us are teachers. I think all of us are teachers. And I think we need to be careful. I do think that we need to be confident in the Lord and confident in our profession of faith, confident in our profession of Jesus is the way. But we do need to be careful when we're faced with these circumstances because we can't judge quickly. We need to know what the Holy Spirit is saying about a situation because there's so many metrics. I've just mentioned two, your professed revelation and the actual amount of revelation that's been put in your life. But there are probably, just based on like, my other example of how I'm here and I'm maybe just a little bit closer to God than they were in Genesis, there are probably so many other metrics that God is using when he looks at you to actually figure out what that third way is where he's innocent as a dove and yet wise as a serpent. 
Now, for us, you should know you can control a little bit of the professed revelation that you see. So I feel much safer when I'm in a situation I say, I don't know. I'm getting better at it. I don't know. I don't know. I know a little bit, but I don't know much. So you can control that, but I want you to know you can't control the actual revelation that's been put in front of you. You can't go to church your whole life and then get up to heaven and say, I never went to church. You can't say, I never saw nature, and I never, I never thought about it. Your revelation is your revelation. And we get washed by the word in order to become more sanctified in our minds and in our thinking. But there's this double problem, right? You get washed by the word so you can live better, but more is expected of you. More is expected of you. You can't avoid it. And the way forward is actually to make yourself more responsible, to actually wash yourself even more. I believe that God is predictable. I believe that we would be able to judge like him if we knew as much as he did, because he's true to his character. But we have to be humble and know that we are not God, and that we don't know all of his metrics. But I love studying Jesus' third way. That's not just about the simplest way of exacting justice, but how he actually brings all of the pieces of his character together. Lord, help us as we find your third way. Not just mercy, not just justice, but a place that brings everything together. The way that honors your holiness and that takes into account your revelation that you've given us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be afraid, but we would know that you're the perfect judge, that you see our weaknesses. You walked on the earth to show that you can see what it's like to be us. And you take our weaknesses into account. You know so intricately every place, every weakness in our frame. You know that when we stumble, we're not just stumbling in a vacuum but that we have circumstances around us that have contributed to us stumbling. And Lord, I hope that you'll see my sincerity, that even though when I stumble, I'm sincere in my efforts to love you more. And Lord, help me to be more sincere. And Lord, I pray for everybody here that you would see the sincerity in their heart And that you would take our weaknesses into account when you judge us, when you tell us how we're doing. And Lord, I also pray that we would be open to your judgments now. That you would help us to be aware of how we're doing now. And not be afraid of you. Because you're a father. And just like a father, you see everything and you take it into account. To help us, not to hurt us. Amen.